If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open up them to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be walking through verses 14 through 16 this morning. And some of this is just by way of review to make sure that we're on the same page. I've not listened to every uh, sermon uh, that has been presented to you through the book of Hebrews, but I want to make sure that we're kind of caught up on a couple of things. Hebrews reads like a sermon, and Grant may have pointed some of these things out to you. Uh, It is a sermon that is marked with exhortations to press on, to hold firm, to not drift. It's also a sermon that's marked with an awful lot of warnings. Don't let sin harden you. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be immature. Don't neglect your confession. And that's a sign of a good sermon, one that, uh, that, that exhorts you on one hand and warns you on the other. Um, Charles Spurgeon says that the mark of a good sermon is that it comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. And I think that Hebrews does that. The dominant theme through the, through the book is that Jesus is better. The, the, the exhortation is for us to consider Jesus because you've got this group of, of, of Jewish believers that were still struggling to hang on to kind of the trappings of religion in their Jewish tradition and they're going back to these shadows and the author of Hebrews is saying, no, look to the reality. That's just a taste, but I can give you the fullness that's seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus is better. He's a better word from God. He is superior to the angels. He's a better prophet than Moses. He's a better priest than Aaron. He's a better sacrifice than goats and bulls. He seals a better covenant. And Jesus is a better rest than the promised land. And so the dominant charge, because Jesus is better, the author is telling you, grab him. Hold on to him. Let those other things go. Jesus is far more valuable. And so the application for us, and I'm going to give it to you on the front side, is cling fast to Jesus. It's simple as that, right? It's simple to receive. It's a lot harder for us to do. Now, Hebrews can be a really hard book to read because it is loaded with Old Testament imagery. And for many parts of the evangelical church, we've kind of disregarded a study of the Old Testament. And when we do that, uh, we we don't connect the dots very well, even when we get to the New Testament. It's kind of like showing up to a movie. I don't know if any of you ever had that friend that was always late, and they'd walk into the movie, and they'd spend the whole time going, well, what's this guy doing? Why is he doing that? Who's that? What's going on? And finally, you look and go, stop. We'll walk through it at the end. And so we've got to understand the Old Testament if we want to make sense, really, of Jesus as he is presented to us in the New Testament. Because if we just read the Gospels, we're left going, who is this guy? Why did he pop on the scene now? And why is he doing that? And he's talking about bread from heaven. What's that about? And water from the rock. What's that about? And so the Old Testament contextualizes all of that for us and really presents to us a more complete Christ. Because Jesus, uh, God in his sovereignty, presents one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's not divided up, and so we cannot unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. There's really only three sermons in the whole Bible, right? It's Christ is coming, Christ is here, Christ is coming again. And so we see the Old Testament. It's about looking forward to this Advent, which is what we're going to celebrate here in a few weeks as you guys walk through the fact that this promised one is now here And now we find ourselves as kind of the new Israel looking forward to Christ coming again. And so every sermon can be placed into one of those three categories even today. And I think Hebrews kind of ties all of that together for us. It's largely marked by pictures and symbols. They're designed to prepare us for Christ. We see this 
with the Passover. We see it with manna coming down from heaven, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We see it with water flowing from the rock, and Jesus says, I'm the living water. And page after page after page is all pointing forward to all these fulfillments in Christ, right? In, in Jesus, all the promises have their yes, as Paul would say. Um, but those Old Testament shadows, they eventually will give way to the realities of the New Testament. So Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament, and he is fully revealed in his glory in the New Testament. And Hebrews kind of acts like that Rosetta Stone that kind of allows us to put the pieces together and see Jesus in his fullness. And so let us, let's be careful that we don't kind of disconnect ourselves from the Hebrews and say, well, we're, we're 21st century Americans. We don't really have anything in common. The writer of Hebrews would say, you have everything in common. You too are a people in the wilderness. So when we read about Israel walking through the wilderness, we should be able to relate to them because we have been brought out through a Passover miracle, right? But it's Jesus who died. We now are in the wilderness to worship, and we are looking to a promised land that is marked by this rest that I know Grant preached on last week. So we're the exact same in many ways. And all of these exhortations about holding fast, about not drifting, about taking hold of Jesus apply to us in the exact same way that they applied to this audience. And so we come to a very powerful picture today, and it's the picture of a high priest. And this is a hard concept. If you did not grow up Catholic, and you're a good, solid Protestant from day one, this can be a hard, uh, a hard thing for us to, to get our mind around. Um, but a priest is basically a go-between. It's somebody who bridges the gap between the people and between a deity. And every culture has basically had a concept of a priest, which I find to be interesting. So whether that priest was one who would make the sacrifices, grabbing, you know, you, you see it in the movies, grabbing and, and placating God by throwing people into volcanoes. They understood that there needed to be this go-between, this person who offered these sacrifices, or whether it was just a priest who kind of held all the religion and all the keys. Every culture has had a priest, a go-between. But the Old Testament priests really accomplish nothing. They, they only shadow what is ultimately going to be done in Christ. And, and I love this. There's so much symbolism here. And so I'm going to try not to get too far into the weeds, but this is one of those themes in Scripture that has captivated my imagination for the last 10 years. So basically what the priest does is he redoes in reverse Adam's journey out of Eden. Now you're going to have to track this. this, is, this I think this stuff's really cool. So you remember Adam's job in the garden was to walk and to commune with God. And he sins, and he is removed east of Eden. So anytime you see that direction in the Bible, east, that's a bad sign. So he's kicked out east of Eden, and the angels are put in front of, uh, of the garden to protect. Really, we, we look at it as, well, he's keeping Adam out. Well, he's keeping Adam out for his own benefit. Because if Adam enters back into the holiness of God as a sinful man, he gets crushed. And so something now has to bridge the gap. Something now has to make a way for Adam to get back into the presence of God. And that is the entire story of the Bible. It's about restoring that relationship. And so the temple is constructed to look like a miniature Eden. So if you know your, your temple motifs, its entrance faces east so that man can find his way back. And there's an altar out there, and the, all the imagery of the temple is designed to look like a garden. It's full of almond blossoms and fruits and flowers and, and wood. It's got four basins that represent the four rivers that, that, that hemmed in Eden. And so it is very Edenic in its picture. 
But not only that, the words that are used to describe what Adam did in the garden, walking and keeping, are the exact same words used in Leviticus to describe what the priests do in the temple. And so the priests are supposed to be pictures of Adam. Of Adam. And it's not coincidental, however, that the priests, um, each day, each year on the Day of Atonement, the priests would reverse Adam's journey of banishment back into the presence of God. And so he'd make sacrifices at the altar. He'd gather the blood. Right? That was for his own sin that he could slowly enter into the presence of God again. He'd progressively enter different chambers as he approached the mercy seat. And this journey would be culminated as an entrance into the holiest place where he'd splatter blood on the altar to make symbolic atonement for the sins of Israel. He'd show the blood to God. He'd spread the incense, which marked prayer and the communing with God again, but he was not allowed to stay there. He could not sit down. He did not make himself comfortable in the presence of God. His job is done, and he leaves, glad to be alive, and then he is banished, so to speak, east of Eden again as he leaves the temple because he's in Adam. And there are only two people, those in Christ and those in Adam. And if you are in Adam, you are banished from the presence of God. And remember that that holiest place was protected by a giant curtain to mark separation, and it had the cherubim woven into it. And the flaming swords were, out, were to keep Adam out, right? So God is a fearful God. And these pictures there are to remind us and to remind the priest that God is holy and you are not. And as not holy, you cannot be in the presence of a holy God without being consumed. So this is a really big deal. And it's lost on us because we don't get to see all of the, the, the gallons and gallons of blood splattered. We don't get to smell the aroma of both death and the offering to the priest, right? It was a very sensual, so to speak, ritual. It's kind of lost on us. So you've got to go with the picture here and try to throw yourself into the story. But this task was so fearful that tradition has it that the priests would have bells tied to their clothing and a rope tied around them. And they would walk in a little bit at a time. And if they were struck down, nobody could go into the presence of God and live. So they couldn't go retrieve the body. So they'd have to pull them back out. Now you imagine what it was like to get ready for that sort of ritual. Like you probably paid attention to every single jot and tittle of the law because your life hinged upon doing things properly. God is a holy God. He demands holiness. And I work with a lot of college kids, and they'll ask the three big questions of life. Is there a God? If there is, what's he like? And what does he want? And the what does he want question is hard, because what does he want? Yeah, he wants perfection. And you say, well, I can't handle that. And I say, exactly. But I got good news. There's one who can. And we get that, right? We have a perfect plea. We really could just sing that song again uh, for the sermon and save ourselves 35 minutes because that's basically what we're going to do this morning. Those rituals did not provide true atonement. They only pointed to something. Um, and they'd have to do it over again next year. It's not the real way that people get right with God, but it does illustrate those realities that God is holy and that man is sinful and as such we cannot be around each other. You're going to get tired of hearing this theme of priest over the course of the next. I think you guys are taking an Advent break, and then you're jumping back in in January. And from chapter 4 to chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is going to expand upon this concept of priest. So you're going to get these themes over and over and over again because it is central to the idea of what Jesus has come to do. 
So I'm just going to introduce the topic a little bit this morning, uh, unpack it just a, just a touch, and then leave a lot of that work for Grant to do the heavy lifting later. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. I'm going to give you the application at the front. Ready? Hold fast your confession. When you leave here and somebody says, what was this sermon about? You say, well, I'm supposed to do two things. I am supposed to hold fast my confession, and I am to confidently draw near to God. You say, well, how can we confidently draw near to God? I just heard the story about the priests who had to tie bells to themselves so they didn't get struck down. I'm going to say we can draw confidently to God because we have a better high priest. So let's look at this first exhortation. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Now, one of the dangers we see in the book is this tendency that we have as human beings to drift and to falter in the wilderness. And the, the, the writer here is saying, grab on tight. And the word that he uses means to wrap your arms around and squeeze. So I, I was thinking about what this looks like. What happens when you get distracted? So I have four daughters, and when they're little, when they're three or four years old, and they grab something, they can have pretty strong grips. And one of the best ways to get them to let go of something is to say, look over there. Grab it, you can look over there, and you can pull it right out of their hand. Why? Because they've forgotten what they ultimately were doing. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't look around. Consider Jesus and hold on to him tight. Hold this confession. Don't trade something in your hand that's valuable for something that's less valuable. What's important to say, it doesn't say let us hold our faith tightly. It says let us hold our confession, which implies a certain element of public testimony. Faith can be private, but your confession is very public. It's not that we simply need to just keep believing in our private convictions regarding Jesus. We need to keep confessing him before men. Now think about that in our modern world. Will you hold so tightly to Jesus that you will confess Christ to a hostile world? Will you proclaim Christ to a world that hates him? Will you tell that Jesus is the only way in a culture that calls you bigoted and closed-minded? Will you call a world to repentance? Will you stand for biblical sexuality? Or will you loosen your grip as you get distracted by the praise of man, by the acceptance of the culture that comes your way that says, just loosen it up a little bit? Why would you hold it so tightly? Have an open mind. G.K. Chesterton says, an open mind is like a mouth. It's only open so that it can close on something good. That's what we're called to do here, to close on to our confession. Now, there's an important point uh, to be made here because even in solid churches, there can be a tendency to say things like this. You don't really need doctrine. You just need Jesus. And it sounds really good until you really unpack what that means. And it means I just need this idea, this vague notion of Jesus, but I don't really know anything about him because our doctrine is what gives us the boundaries so that we know the biblical Jesus. I don't need creeds. I don't need confessions. Just give me Jesus. And I think the Bible would say, no, no, no. You absolutely need creeds and confessions that tie you to Christ. They're what explain Jesus in a real way. J.C. Ryle writes this, and here's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think he says it better than I could. A religion without doctrine or dogma is a thing which which many are fond of talking of in the present day. It sounds very fine at first. It looks very pretty at a distance. But the moment we sit down and examine and consider it, we shall find it a simple impossibility. We might as well talk about the body without bones and sinews. No man will ever be anything or do anything in religion unless he believes something. No one ever write earnestly, no one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh and the devil, unless he has engraven on his heart certain great principles which he believes. 
This is why Franklin City is committed to walking through the Word of God verse at a time. This is why you have membership classes. This is what the children are doing back there as they lay a foundation. It's about seeing Christ, about knowing Christ, about proclaiming Christ. But in order to do that, we have to have solid, tangible truths that we hold on to and that we proclaim. If we're to hold on to him in the storms of life, we need to know the value of what we are holding. If I give you a coin and you're holding it and you, you think it's worth one cent, you think it's a penny, you are not going to hold it nearly as tightly as if I say, hey, that's an ancient Roman coin. It's worth $2.5 million. Now, how much tighter did your grip get on that once you understood its value? That is the significance of the doctrines that we proclaim, is that it presents the value of the Christ that we long to hold on to. So the writer gives us reasons to persevere in our confession. And he doesn't give you a speech about human fortitude. Rather, he makes a doctrinal point, which fits with the previous point that we had. He says, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The reason behind our perseverance is the work and person of Christ. And verse 15 goes on to explain this. Look at what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus is a superior high priest. His priestly work just didn't point to something. It actually accomplished something. It just didn't temporarily deal with sin. It did it permanently. And so hold fast because there's a permanence now to your confession. The work is finished. He's not just passed through the curtain like the Old Testament priest did. He's passed through the heavens. And I want you to think about this. This is why you cannot give up. This is why you have to hold fast because there is still humanity before the presence of God. Think about that for a minute. Jesus raises bodily and ascends bodily and sits down at the right hand of the Father bodily. I don't know how it all works. I just know what the text proclaims. And there is still humanity that is interceding on behalf of us, on behalf of God's people before the throne of God. And the same heart that marked Jesus on earth, the same mercy, the same compassion that drew people to him is the same mercy and compassion that marks his heart in heaven. The same way he pled for his disciples is the same way he pleads for his sheep now. Lord, protect my people. And so we can hold fast our confession because Jesus has done the work. Now I'm going to head a little bit into Hebrews. I want you to flip over a few pages and look at chapter 7. 23 through 27. And Grant will be preaching on this over and over and over again. But I want to point out just a couple of highlights here about why this high priest is better. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, in other words, this is why he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so, without going into a ton of detail, we see that Jesus continues in office. He doesn't die. He's a permanent high priest because he lives eternally. 
He can save to the uttermost. What a great phrase. He saves us completely and securely. And because he lives and continues to make intercession, I want you to think about the fact that the sins that plagued you last week, Christ interceded on your behalf for. And the sins that are going to plague you next week, and there will be plenty, Christ will intercede for because he's an eternal high priest and because his sacrifice once and for all was sufficient. He's a better high priest because he doesn't have to atone for his own sins, but rather he atones for our sins through his own perfect sacrifice, which is himself. And so what was shadowed in bulls and goats is accomplished in Jesus. He is our Passover lamb once and for all. The work is finished. And I love that phrase, once for all. Think about this. You, I get a little emotional when I say this. You are as loved by God now as you ever will be, ever. He will not love you any more if you are in Christ than he loves you right now. So stop trying to earn his favor and instead grab on and hold your confession. That's a baffling truth to me. I don't, I don't, I don't improve my standing before God. If I am in Christ, I am as loved as I ever will be. If we pondered this more, it would be to our great benefit. I want you to go back now to chapter 4. I want you to see this cool truth as well. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. Jesus knows what it's like. He knows the struggle. I love what Dorothy Sayer says, and it's another long quote, but there's just people who are better at this stuff than I am. She writes this, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he was playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from trivial irritations of family life and cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. Don't we want a sympathetic high priest? Isn't this essentially what Job cries out for in the midst of all of his suffering? In chapter 9, he basically stops all of his friends and he says, you know what? God is not a man like I am that I can go plead my case. We are not equals. And he says, what I really want is there to be one who can lay his hand upon God and lay his hand upon me that we might come to court together. Somebody who can explain these things to these two parties Job wanted an advocate who understood what it was like. Don't we all want that? In our misery and suffering, somebody to take a knee beside us and say, man, I am here and I know how it feels. I have been where you are. And Jesus says, not only am I the priest that can go into the, into the presence of God, but I know what it's like. And so when I tell you to hold fast, I'm not telling you to do anything that I myself did not have to do. He knows your struggles. And he doesn't just know them theoretically. He knows them experientially. He doesn't roll his eyes at our pain and our struggles. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't say like we do with our children. Oh, this is is just middle school drama. He is fully invested in what we are going through because he understands it. In fact, he knows it better than we do. And as such, he sympathizes with us. Now, there's something in music, and I'm sure a musician here can correct me on this, but it's called sympathetic resonance. 
And basically it means if you have two pianos in a room and you strike a note on one piano, the frequency will cause the same note in the other piano to just gently hum along. I think this is a great illustration of what goes on in heaven because Christ's instrument is the same as ours. There is no note of your experience that does not resonate with our great high priest. And let us not make the mistake of somehow thinking, well, Jesus was God. His temptations and trials were not real. Only those who resist temptation to the fullest end know how strong it really is. When it's windy out, you don't face the strength of the wind by laying down. You face the strength of the wind by walking into it. And so a picture that I once heard somebody say is, imagine there are two men and they've had millstones tied around their waist and thrown into a well. And one guy, he, he resists for a minute and the rope cuts into his back and kind of hurts his hand and he fights and he's like, ah, this just hurts too bad. He jumps in. The other guy says, I'm not going in. And he digs in his heels and there's blood coming off from his grip and it's cutting into his back and he just continues to fight and he never, ever gives in. Who understands that temptation greater? Who understands that trial even more? This is our high priest who says, yes, your trials are strong but I saw them all the way through. I faced the wind head on. I know it's full of strength in a way that you never, ever will, in a way that you never could. Jesus was fully tempted. And as such, he can sympathize in our weakness. He's merciful when we fail. There is nothing we experience in this life that does not evoke a sympathetic resonance in heaven. And it is this truth that gives us our basis for our second exhortation in verse 16. Let us then, because of what I've just told you, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. There is no longer a need to be hesitant when approaching God. There's a great high priest who's offered that sacrifice once and for all for you. There's a great high priest who knows what it's like to face temptation. There's a great high priest who offers you not judgment, but mercy and grace. The result of these truths, of this confession, we might say, is there's a frank boldness as we come into the throne room. And we do not need to approach through a priest like our Catholic friends do. We don't sit and confess our sins before a screen with another man behind there. The curtain has been torn, and now we go straight before the face of God. Right? I mean, we don't have to go through a man anymore. We have a better priest. These little shadows, I tell my Catholic friends, get rid of the shadow. Why would you cling to this? You can't touch it, feel it, or hold it. But there is a tangible human in the, in the presence of God that you can cling to. Go to him and go confidently. And if you've ever, I don't know what your relationships with your dad was like, but when my dad would be in business meetings and, I, and as a little kid, you kind of go bounding in and then it was kind of like, uh-oh. And you kind of back back out. Our heavenly father says, come in, bound up on my lap. I know what it's like. I am here to give you grace from the throne. And so the first priests, the ones that were in Adam, they had to tiptoe in with bells and ropes, hoping not to be struck down. The bells and ropes are gone. Cast off those things which hold you back and bound into the presence of God with boldness. That's what we are commanded to do. And so the contrast between the Old Testament priests and the person of Christ who's accomplished these things on our behalf. And so you can go boldly because you are worthy not because of anything that you've done, 
but because you are counted worthy in Christ and that sacrifice was more than worthy on the cross. A few years ago, um, I was a member at LA Fitness and a couple of the pastors at, at LifePoint, we play racquetball, which I'm sure was a fiasco. I don't know why they put glass up so everybody can laugh at you. I wish it was just a, a wall because I found people sitting in treadmills pointing and laughing at us. But we would get together and uh, I had a membership and one of the other pastors had a membership, but the other two did not. And they had to, but one of the other pastors had a, a plus two membership so he could get two people in. We got there early one time, and the two that did not have a membership um, were there early, and we just started walking in. I scanned my card. We all walked in, and the lady said, hold on. You can go. You two can't. And it wasn't until the other guy got there with the pass, once he was able to go, they could say, I'm with him. So we come into the presence of God, not because we are worthy, but because we're with him. Right? So Jesus walks in boldly, and it's like, <laughs> I'm with him, Satan. You can no longer keep me from God. My sin no longer separates. The, 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 the membership dues have been paid. They've just been paid by him. I'm with him. That is the picture that is painted here. And as we begin to wrap this up, I want you to notice that it says the throne of grace, right? He's a king. He is king of the universe. But he's a king who gives us what we need most. He, we need grace. And so it's a throne of grace, and it's almost uh, an oxymoron in the way that it is pieced together there. So let us boldly come to him and receive the mercy he promises. If you want to achieve the rest that Grant preached on last week, hold fast to the end. If you want mercy, come confidently to him. This is my last, my last point here, and I want to make sure that we understand this. And I want to be careful here, but it is not your confession that saves you. It is the one that we confess that saves us. Our, ob our faith has an object. And so, guys, there are some of you in the wilderness. I have been alive long enough, and I know that every one of you is carrying a burden. And 2020 has been a hard year for many. And you're struggling. Your faith is hanging by a thread. Or you look back at certain parts of your life where you know somebody, and it's just this dangling little faith. And you're on the, you're on the verge of just of losing that grip and, and having something yank it out of your hand. And I want to encourage you with a story. I may have shared this before here. D.A. Carson tells a great story about two men in Egypt. And they're Israelites. And they've just received the word from Moses that they are to cover the doorposts with blood. And you've got one guy who is like, this is awesome. He's got a big mop bucket of blood and he's splattering it all over the door frame. And he's like, we're going to be delivered. His neighbor is like, man, this stuff sounds weird. And he grabs a Q-tip and he dips it in a drop and he puts one drop on, one drop there, one drop there. Now, which of these two men is saved? Which of these two men is delivered? Both of them. Because it's not the level of faith that saves us. It's the giver of the faith that saves us. And so I'm encouraging you guys today, those of you who are like, man, my faith is just so feeble. Hang on. It's not your faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you. And Job understood this. This is what he wanted more than anything else. He wanted one in the midst of his faith that he could relate to, one that could empathize with him as he was feeble and frail. And what he got was one who understood it even better than he did. What Job wanted was sympathy and mercy. What he got was the throne of grace. And we get to see clearly what Job could only imagine and see through a shadow. Friends, we can hold fast and we can go boldly because even though we too are in the wilderness, the destination is sure. 
And the last text that I want to read, and it's just a few verses later in Hebrews 6, and it's one of my favorite in all the Bible. It says this, We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I love that picture because what it is, in ancient uh, harbor towns, when the tide was low, the big ships couldn't get into the harbor. And they would send a small ship known as a forerunner with an anchor. And that ship would go in and drop anchor right in the middle of the harbor. Even though the big boat was not in the harbor yet, it considered the journey over. And it was only a matter of time until that tide came up and they pulled the rope and it pulled them in. But they were as secure as they would be in the harbor. They just weren't done with the destination yet. But for all intents and purposes, the journey was over because arrival was a sure thing. This is the picture that the writer of Hebrews paints. It's a great picture, right? There is one who is anchored in the presence of God. You just got to hang on. At some point, and I don't know when, man, I pray it's today, that tide comes up. Every day, the older I get, and it's not just because my body starts aching, I just want to be with Jesus. And I'm with him in reality here, but man, I want to see, like I want to hold him, right? I, I want him to pull me tight and I've got to hang on to that rope because Jesus has gone in and dropped anchor. My job is to just hold fast. That's it. There's nothing for me to accomplish in my salvation except to stay the course. And so friends, the anchor of our souls is safely in the harbor. He's passed through the heavens and he has sat down. He is there. We just need to wait patiently for the tide and hang on to our rope. Amen? Let me pray.